Look to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 25 to 35. I've entitled this sermon, Contentment in Christ. And so we'll launch right into it. Uh, the apostle revisited what had been established in the first few verses of the chapter. Namely, he is uh, explaining further the point that it is good for a man not to touch a woman. It is good for a man not to touch a woman. And so here, as he continues forward in verse 25 of 1 Corinthians 7, he is not contradicting that point, but rather he provides a trustworthy saying. And this trustworthy saying is worthy of consideration among the Corinthians. And that trustworthy saying is tied uh, specifically to virgins. And it is tied to how virgins are to conduct themselves in this world, especially with reference to progressing toward marital age and being handed over uh, in marriage uh, by the uh, by their fathers. And so essentially, Paul writes in verse 25 now concerning virgins now concerning virgins. And this point, as you see, it said is directly connected to verse 24, but also specifically connected to the context above. So he's not beginning to deal with a new issue or a new explanation of an issue, but rather he's attaching all that has been said previously to what he's about to say. And essentially, those who are of marital age, virgins, he is speaking to them and speaking about them, and he says, now, concerning virgins, I have no command of the Lord. I'll talk about what that means. And he says, but I give an opinion as one who, by the mercy of the Lord, is trustworthy. So first, let us define what he means by virgin. He means those who are of marital age and old enough to consummate their marriages, as what he has spoken of before. Here it says, Paul is giving an opinion on the matter. But this is not simply what he thinks versus or against what the Lord has said. So he's not saying this is what I think, and yet it contradicts what the Lord has said. So to explain what he means by giving his opinion, rather what this is, is it's a trustworthy statement tied to his apostleship. For Paul has stated that what he is about to say is trustworthy, but more important to that is he himself is trustworthy and commended by God to deliver what he is saying. And so what he's also explaining that in this particular area, with respect to virgins, there is no explicit command from the Lord in Scripture that forbids virgins to marry or places some constraint on them when they reach marrying age. I'll say that again. Paul's delivering this trustworthy opinion, so to speak, because there is no explicit command. There's no outward scripture that speaks to this directly. So Paul says here, I will give you counsel on the matter. And specifically, there's no explicit command from the Lord in scripture that forbids virgins in the new covenant to marry or places some constraint on them when they reach marrying age. And so that is where Paul begins. And then in verse 26, he says, I think then that this is good, that this is good in view of the present distress, that it is good for a man to remain as he is. And so 
What Paul is dealing with is not simply some abstract distress or he's painting a picture of hypothetical distress. What he's saying is that all the things that we have spoken of previously related to this issue has caused distress, the immorality with reference to the perversion of marriage. Uh, Equally so, how one ought to conduct themselves within the confines of marriage, as we have specifically addressed and looked at uh, in the earlier portion of this chapter. And so there is a distress that was taking place, and Paul says, in light of that, let me address this for you. And let me say this, that it is good for a man to remain as he is. And in light of that, he's saying that the the virgin can remain as she is and the man can remain as he is. That is apart and yet desiring to serve God and to serve him exclusively. And so the context here is to the unmarried. It's to the unmarried. But I also believe that the appending distress to which he refers deals with the last things, eschatology, the last days. Because as we progress through the text, in view is how we conduct ourselves in devotion to the Lord with the knowledge that we have that he can return at any time and that we expect his return at any time. So therefore, how do we then conduct ourselves? So he is speaking of an issue that has arisen among the Corinthians, but he's also helping them and us change our focus to what will happen in the end and how we then govern ourselves in this issue of being married versus uh, unmarried and any circumstance that would bring that about. So he's relating this to the nearness of the end. And so he says in verse 27 as well, are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be released. Are you released from a wife. Do not seek a wife. So Paul is speaking eschatologically, meaning he's speaking with the end times in view. He's speaking related to the last things because all Christians are living in light of eternity. All Christians are living their lives with eternity in view. And Paul is trying to help the Corinthians understand that they're not simply to invest themselves in temporal matters exclusively. But he's saying if you must invest yourself in that which is temporal, you must do so with an eternal focus. And I would say that that is up to this point what he has been trying to establish in them because they were not only temporal in their thinking at times, they were fleshly in their thinking at times. And so Paul is redirecting them to living a life in the spirit with reference to eternity. Therefore, this life demands... We would then connect it this way. This life demands our, yours and mine and them, uh, our singular focus. We have to have a singular focus. And that is a singular focus devoted to God. Now, what Paul was not advocating, as you look at verse 27 closely, he was not advocating a restless spirit. He was not saying that you should be trying to figure out If you want to be married or trying to figure out if you want to be unmarried for before he has made it quite simple that if one desires to be intimate, uh, a male desires to be intimate, he should seek for himself a female spouse, a wife. 
If a female desires to be intimate, she should then seek for herself a male husband. And that is a good thing. However, he's saying if you do not seek to be intimate, then you should seek to have your singular focus directed to God in not only singleness, but devotion and singularity. But he was not saying to be restless. He was not leaving them to decide where they stood. He was giving them specific counsel on how to conduct themselves in either case. And he was doing so in not only the absence of scripture being explicit on this matter, uh, but he was also helping them think about God's will because I do believe they were attacking God's will. And so he wants them to focus on what does God have for you specifically. And God is pretty clear about that. And here are the ways you can decide what he has for you within the confines of marriage or to remain single. So he considered that it is best to be content. That is where Paul arrives. And you remember when he says that because he says it elsewhere in scripture when he talks about contentment. He doesn't say it's not good to have possessions. He doesn't say it's not good at times to lack for both teaches us valuable lessons in light of eternity. But what he says is, whatever your state, it is good to be content. It is good to be content. And so here he simply applies it to the marital context. He considered it best to be content whether a man was single or had taken a wife or, quote unquote, virgin in marriage. So in light of this, Paul is dealing with this aspect related to life's troubles and sin in the world before us. But he wants to help them understand that they are not to wear this as a badge of personal and self-righteousness as though marital marital status contributes to one's right standing before God or to be unmarried in and of itself contributes to one's right standing before God. You have pagans who are married. You have believers who are single and vice versa. So what Paul is saying is it is about devotion to the Lord and contentment in the heart. And so he is dealing with this. If you look at verse 28, he says, but if you marry. He's speaking to the man, if you marry. And what is assumed is that this is one man and one wife, as he said earlier, joining joining together in God's divine institution of marriage and intimacy and carrying out the creation mandate amongst themselves in love and in honoring one another in him. That is what he's referring to, because marriage carries so many perverse connotations in the society with which we find ourselves with reference to homosexuality, with reference to other perversions that enter in to the marital construct of society. But what Paul is assuming is one man and one wife. And so he says, but if you marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Yet such will have trouble in this life, and I am trying to spare you. I want to help you consider what this is dealing with. Given the, in, uh, the imminent return of Christ and all that means, with a kingdom of God that is uh, going to be visibly and faithfully installed, eternally so as well, uh, post-millennial kingdom, 
we do recognize that there's a kingdom of darkness raging against that. And so what is in view is the imminent return of Christ. There was to be a hopefulness to the return of the great bridegroom. So that is why singleness would then be promoted uh, by Paul the Apostle as a matter of opinion, but trustworthy counsel. Because he's saying in the believer's plight, the believer's plight is oriented toward the return of Christ. As such, it was the believer's plight related to males to remain married if married. So remain married if married or to remain single if seeking to serve the Lord in singular focus. Here you do not have conflicted interests. You do not have conflicted interests. You have where the man who is married must not desire to be free from marriage. So it's not a man who's married wants to be single. And it's not a person who's single wants to be married. Nor should the one who has singular focus to God in singleness desire to take for himself a wife. That is what Paul is saying. So, so many are not content in either state, but saying that they ought to remain in the state without understanding all that comes with it. So those who have defaulted to singleness, perhaps at times are not singular in their focus and devotion to God. And then those who are married have competing interests against God. And what he's saying is that what you're trying to achieve is a sanctified singularity of focus to God. And he's saying, as we progress a little further, more challenges arise when two become one flesh versus when you just have one who is fighting and warring against the flesh. So this is not single and waiting to be married, nor is it being married but desiring to be single. So backing up into verse 28, this is very plain. The one who is single or married does not wear a self-righteous badge based on their marital status. Instead, if the one who is single desires to take for himself a wife, then what Paul says in verse 28 that drives this whole thing, then it is not sin to do so. It is not a sin to desire to be married. It is a sin to desire to be married outside of the male and female construct that is divine and that God has established. But it is not a sin to desire to be married. It is not fitting then, as the apostle puts it, it is not fitting to be single and then claim that one desires to be single while seeking for a wife. It is better that if one longs to be married, then please be married. Please go and find a wife, Paul says. Be married. Pray to the Lord that that would be confirmed and affirmed. The man and virgin are not in sin if they marry. Or if she is given to him in marriage by their consent to love one another for a few reasons. Because that is who Paul is referring to. He says that she is not in sin. She has not sinned. But her life will be filled with trouble. 
because we live in a fallen world. And although redeemed as we are in Christ, us believers, we are still at war with our flesh. And so we're taking someone in and taking someone on who are in the same state or perhaps may be discovered to find out, as we talked about in the passages before, that they may not be believers. And we thought they were. And so there are troubles associated just with uniting together in this construct. So marriage itself, without all that we're saying, is not the marriage that God intends if it is simply the focus on marriage itself. The marriage is designed to help drive us toward a devotion to God by demonstrating a love for one another in that context. But I say that it is not sin because that is what Paul says, but to demonstrate it for you, First, as we have seen in the previous passages related to children entering the picture and the picture, as we talked about, of the sanctified home, that they are complying with the creation mandate and the stipulation, not only in the creation mandate, as we move from Genesis and what God has said to Adam and what he and Eve are supposed to accomplish with their dominion at that time, it moves through the Noahic covenant. As they exit the ark, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Do not stop at the plains of Shinar and build to oppose God. Scatter. Fill the earth, be fruitful, multiply, have children. Let generations proceed from you. That's what God wants. God does not want population control. He wants you to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. And it is he... And I want to be plain about this. It is he who opens and closes the womb. And so knowing that that's the case, we live in that mandate and praise God for it. But I say that to say, secondly, it is not a sin for the man and the virgin to be married because they both desire to partake in the Lord's divine institution of marital union between one man and one wife. As Paul has written earlier in our context. Now, I do not say this to be crass because the cult, the cults, especially the Roman Catholic cults, they force singleness and they force singleness, pretending it's singularity of focus when really raging within them. And you see it in all their scandals is a lust, a perverse lust that comes out in the form of scandal. And you know all of what I'm saying. But also it happens in the modern evangelical construct that people are exalting family and marriage. And then you read about scandal and inappropriateness and and sexual immorality and all the things that relate to that. And they simply play musical chairs with each other and never deal with defining what these things look like in the eyes of God. And so that being the case. Paul is trying to explain to the Corinthians not to operate that way, because I truly believe the ways that I just referred to spring from the filth that was in Corinth and society just adopted. There's nothing new under the sun. And remember what I said. This is where it applies. Corinth was a very religious society and it was a very elite society. That sounds very familiar. 
I don't believe that we can move the goalposts, so to speak, with respect to how we deal with logic and illogical thoughts and say our world is suddenly just pagan to its core. No, our world is very religious. The problem is that religion is false at large if it is not dealing with the exclusive uh, exclusivity of Christ and his teachings alone. So my point is, you see this, that Paul doesn't want lust raging inside their hearts and them operating under the pretense of devotion. In other words, he doesn't want them to say, let's be religious and let's let's because we can't control our, our lust in and of ourselves. Let's just consecrate profane things. Let's bring prostitutes into the temple and make that a religious act. Let's bring false teachers into the temple and listen to them. Let's bring food into the temple and sacrifice it to idols. Let's look at the Lord's table and desecrate it. So Paul is dealing with this and he's saying that let me help you explain the nuances of marriage and singleness with respect to solidarity and singularity of focus to God. They both are partaking in the divine institution of marital union. But as two become one flesh, as two become one, the flesh of both will rise, rise up against the individuals and also within the marriage. And that is what he's saying. But Paul wanted the believers not to be at war with one another in the flesh, even in the context of marriage. However, he maintained that marriage was a blessing to those who were joined together as man. And in this context, his virgin wife, one who is handed over to the man and in, uh, in, uh, to consummate their love for one another and to consummate their marriage. We see a picture of the Song of Solomon. We see a picture of that in this. And it is also why the kingdom was divided. In Israel, because Solomon certainly failed in this area. He made alliances that were not to be made. And view for Paul, the Corinthians, and us is the need for this. It's to consider the world and the form or pattern of this world. Not just in the particulars, but the progressive day-to-day construct of the world and its system. Meaning both the world physically... Because we do view the world materially. It does exist before us. It's not an apparition. So physically and the system behind how the world is governed. In verse 29, Paul says that's that's what's in view because that's passing away. But this I say after saying you'll have trouble. Again, the way he uses the word but, the conjunction, the way that he uses it is to connect. The same way that he used now in verse 25. He's connecting the thoughts together. Not disjoining the thoughts from one another. But this I say, brethren, the time has been shortened so that from now on, those who have wives should be as though they had none. What? Why? Why should we be that way? Why should we be the way that he's commanding us to be? Well, it's because he's saying the end is near. The end is near. Enjoy your singleness and singular focus and enjoy your marriage. 
But understand, both have a timestamp. Both indeed are till death do us part. And so he says, the time has been shortened. We don't have a lot of time on this earth. So that from now on, those who have wives should be as though they had none. Now, he's not contradicting himself. He's not saying if you have a wife, because the days are shortened, because the eschatological or end times calendar is approaching its conclusion, leave your wife. He's not saying that. He's saying conduct yourself as though that is not the top priority of your life, that it is certainly a priority and a major priority, but it is not to whom you give your singular focus. Your collective focus in marriage ought to be God. And then, and then from that we please one another. And we love one another. And we honor one another. So that is why he says it that way. So that from now on those who have wives should be as though they had none. He doesn't say don't act like you have a wife. He's saying it's a matter of your focus. You have a wife. Love her and all the things he said in chapter seven already concerning that there's a love and compassion there. But he's also saying you must conduct yourself in this life as though you are an ambassador. Do not deprive yourself of marriage, but do not worship marriage. And then he says in verse 30. And those who weep as though they did not weep and those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice and those who buy as though they did not possess and those who use the world. It's a very interesting way you put that. Those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it for the form of this world is passing away. Let's look at this. Essentially, a view for Paul is to consider the passing away of the world. However, Paul does not call for a singular devotion to anything above God. He's not calling for a singular focus to our wives or wives to your husband. So when the word says, husband, love your wives, it then says what? As Christ loved the church. As Christ loved the church. So it's not above God. It is for God and in him. Instead, we must regard the day, the day, the moment, the age, the church age, but specifically the moment Regard each day and the day and the calendar itself in light of eternity as we serve one another, especially in the context of marriage. And you don't really hear a lot of this. You hear people really exalting marriage beyond God himself so that God just becomes a slave of your marriage or God is a peripheral issue to your marriage. But here what Paul is saying is that God is the most important thing with respect to that and everything else that he will address. So one has to regard, as Paul points to the areas mentioned in verses 29 to 30, that the Corinthians were to live as though this temporal life were not the summation of their experience of their experience. Or they were not to live as though this temporal life were not the summation of their existence. My point is they were to live certainly through this life, make use of this life, experience the emotions of this life. So they were not to be stoics where you just go through life and just this blatant, plain, uh, drab approach to it 
And you take pride in the fact that you're unshakable, that your expressions are never expressed, and that you don't smile and you don't get angry. Paul's not saying that. But he's also not saying hedonism. That one just lives how they live in light of the fact that this is all coming to a close. No, what Paul says is enjoy it, experience it, even the hardships of it, because it is going to be hardship and trouble, even in the context of marriage. But he says that is not the total summation or the total sum of your existence, nor of your experience. And it's certainly then not your focus or your focus above God. They were to live as though that this, all that he mentions, was not all there was. For in weeping, as he seems to point us to the new covenant expectation of ecclesiastical wisdom. The wisdom of Solomon. We must act as though we did not weep. For weeping has its start and its end. Paul is not calling for perpetual weeping because he wants us also to rejoice. He's not calling for us to live like hermits in caves and never do anything. He's saying you must purchase. You must engage in commerce. You must buy. But he's also saying that these things have an end to them. That these things will give way to the eternal kingdom of God. And so the same is true with rejoicing. Now listen, he does not say we must not weep or rejoice. He says when we do those things, and you see this even in Ecclesiastes, we must move onward and forward. That in our weeping, in our rejoicing, in our buying and in our selling, we must move onward, knowing that we are marching onward to the king and to the great kingdom that he has established for us. He's, he's, he's dealing with the fact of saying not simply to invest ourselves in those things. And I love it because he even puts this with respect to marriage. And marriage is a beautiful thing. But not simply to invest ourselves to those things as though human existence is found alone in those things. In secular philosophy, that's called existentialism, where the total sum of your experience is and can rise no higher than your experience in this life. And then transcendentalism would say, well, the point of your life is to not simply get caught up in all this, but to reach some self-imposed or some self-guided experience where you are now free from all of this. Well, the trick of the devil is that that sounds very close, but it is still false because in both of those ideologies, you are the source. You are the focus. Paul is saying focus on God. I believe he's coming after the philosophers of that time as well. And then he deals with commerce. He says exchange, buy, make, make your living. Use. Use the world's system to your advantage. I believe that he's echoing Jesus when Jesus said what? Make for yourselves friends of what? The unrighteous mammon. Now he doesn't say... Do your business with the unrighteous mammon. He doesn't say get into business. He says use what's available to you 
for the advantages that are given to you to both provide what you need to provide to exercise dominion in the sense of the creation mandate and the Noahic covenant, and to also within the construct care and provide for your family. He deals with commerce, but he's also saying because our time is short, commerce cannot be an idol. We must do it. We must achieve what we will with it. We must learn it and master ourselves in it. But it cannot become an idol. It cannot become the main thing he's saying. He does not say in verse 31, do not make full use of the world. For we have our course in the world. You and I have to live in the world. And you and I have to interact with the world system. He's not saying close your eyes and run away. He's saying open your eyes and deal with it in light of eternity. So for people who say Christianity is a crutch. They're liars. We are the most sober-minded people, and we can stand up straight to our core with our eyes wide open and know how to operate in a world that is antagonistic toward us because we have the one who did it perfectly, and he also empowers us to do it as he wills. I'm not talking about tapping into some metaphysical cult, but I'm saying simply the principles of God and our sanctification and the recognition of of our eternal hope empowers us to live lives that really and truly deal with the human condition and human existence. He says, make your use of the world. He does not say become dependent on it. He does not say worship it. Because he says, even that has an expiration date. He says in verse 31, for it is passing away. Do not become, he taught the Corinthians, dependent Listen to this on the expressions of temporal life. In other words, it is a blessing to have profound emotions. It is not a blessing to be guided by the emotions for your emotions to be the source of your existence. But rather depend on the one who grants eternal life. And if you're in him and your hope is in him, then your emotions will reflect what he truly cares about. You will weep for what he weeps for. You will rejoice for what he rejoices in. What then should draw our ultimate interest? That is the question. Where should then our primary focus be? Verse 32, but I want you to be free from concern. That's what Paul says. He says the other way multiplies your concerns. What I'm saying to you alleviates your concern. It doesn't alleviate your trouble. It alleviates your concern in the midst of trouble, because in this world you will have trouble. One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord. Now, he's not just giving a blanket statement about unmarried. He's saying one who knows that their state ought to be one who is unmarried, that they desire to be unmarried. And then, therefore, they desire to have their only and singular and primary concern to be of God. How he may please the Lord. And then he says, and he's applying this to the context of marriage. He's not calling the married pagans or worldlings. But look at what he says in verse 33. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world. How he may please his wife. Now he doesn't say that person doesn't have any interest in God. 
Look at what he says in verse 34. And his interests are divided. So there are times where he must turn his interests and singular focus to the needs and the constraints of his life and of his marriage. That is not a wicked thing. But what Paul is saying is that at times it may detract from your singularity. And he's saying the goal is singularity and focus. So then your interests are divided, but they really should be at all times on God. It is not wicked to have your interests taken to your family and to your uh, uh, your your wife. But it should be then you're turning your focus to holiness for her. And the sanctifying means of what God has given in the construct of marriage. But what you have here is freedom. You have freedom. Since the world is passing away, we have to conduct ourselves as though that that is absolutely true. And everything Paul is saying is in light of that. In light of the eventual destruction of the world and the return of Christ, we are to live a certain way. So we see freedom. Whereas before, earlier in this chapter, he talks about the freedom from men. Okay, he talks about I want you to not be slaves. And even in the context of, of marriage, he says that and the application would then be uh, the uh, the personality cults and the factions that were arising earlier in the chapter as we begin, as we began. But what he's saying here is that before I want you to be free from men. Do not be slaves of men. But now I want you to be free from all the troubles and concerns the world will use to seek to distract our singular focus from God. I do believe Paul is assuming a couple of things here because he's assumed them earlier. And I believe he's right in assuming them because this is scripture. I believe he assumes that it is not always the case that there is a believer and a believing spouse with or joined to Another believing spouse. I think that's a part of it because he says it earlier. He doesn't say that there's an intentionality in seeking that to be the case. But he assumes that that happens, especially when you're dealing with the truth and the gospel and people believing they're saved and they're not saved. And that was in Corinth as well. He's dealing with that in this letter. People are religious. and They believe I'm a Paul. I'm of Apollos. I'm of Christ. They're taking each other to court. But Paul is saying, wait a minute. Let's really look at what this is for what it is. So I believe he's dealing with marriage itself. And so he's trustworthy from that standpoint because it's from the teaching of the apostle related to the end. Specifically, ones who are married in the face of the world before them, that is passing away, share an allegiance toward one another and to God. This is a good course. That's not a bad course to take. But what Paul is saying in the question that I believe I'll pose it as a question. Is it the best course? Paul is saying, is it the best course? Verse 34, the woman who is unmarried and the virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and spirit. So those who are fornicators and idolaters and sexually immoral, and yet they do not have a spouse, he's not talking to them. They are joining themselves to the world system. 
in those ways as well. But instead, one who is married, he makes a certain relationship, but in the particulars a contrast, but one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. Now, he's not saying she's wicked, she's evil. Because guess what? I truly believe that is the sense of the passage when it says early in Genesis that her desire will be for her husband. It's not that that particular act is wicked or subservient. It is that in that act, then comes the troubles. Then comes the striving. And so within that context, you have the striving against one another. But I don't think it to mean that it is that act that means they are striving against each other. Because it's a blessing. If if the woman were resigned to that as as a part of an actual curse, I believe it to be that God should just strike them down there. Why prolong this? But instead... He says the married is concerned about the things of the world and how she may please her husband. But look at what he says. This is why I'm saying it's not a curse. Verse 35. This I say for your own benefit. I'm saying this to benefit you. I want you to be blessed by this. What I'm saying about the duty of the unmarried and the married and the virgin and the man who wants a virgin wife and the virgin wife to be who wants to be married to her husband. I'm saying all this to your benefit. I want you to be blessed. I want you to be free. There's freedom in this. I truly believe this explains everything we learned earlier about what was said in Genesis concerning this. He's going back to that. He's going back to the origins. Not to put a restraint on you. I'm not I'm not trying to tie you down. I'm not trying to introduce a new badge of Self-righteous performance. I'm also not trying to desecrate something. But listen to this. I'm trying to promote what is appropriate. Because you're not operating in appropriateness, O Corinthians. And to secure, this is what I want because this is what God wants. To secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. Well, I'm married. I don't have time for the things of the Lord. I don't have time for the things of the word. Well, then you're 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 in sin if you're in marriage in that construct because you are not pursuing undistracted devotion. You may fall short and confess that on your own. But what Paul is saying is his goal in saying all he's saying is I want you to be free and I want you to be undistracted. I'm not saying you will always be undistracted. But I'm saying you're not pursuing the distractions, whether single. So it's not for the single one to say, I don't have time for the things of the Lord, but I'm single. You should then probably marry. Because you cannot be single for the reasons that God perhaps gave it. Because he wants to secure freedom. It's for your freedom and undistracted devotion to the Lord. And so in this, that is what it comes down to and where it will lead next, because that is the goal. Again, I'm not saying the goal is always achieved, and I'm not saying under pretense we make it look as though the goal is achieved so that others can applaud us and be pleased that we appear to be that family who is undistracted. No, he's saying, yes, 
the, the core of the family is divided interests. But we're trying to align those interests in our love for God. And so he deals with singular devotion. The unmarried is speaking of the one in verse 34, once married, who has been abandoned explicitly or widowed implicitly. I believe that that's why he mentions them both. I'll say it again. The unmarried is speaking of the one who was once married, who has been abandoned. Remember what he said earlier in the chapter or widowed implicitly. So then she, whoever she is, is devoted to the Lord and focused on his matters. Whereas the married are his indeed. He doesn't say you're married, therefore you're wicked. That's what the cults do. He also doesn't say you're married, therefore you're righteous simply for being married. That's also what the cults do. Instead, he says, the married are his, but also belong to one another, including in their interests. But they're both to pursue a devotion to the Lord. And they're not to contend against one another in that way. Lastly, Paul is not seeking to constrain them or us. None of this should even sound to you like slavery. And I believe that when the word says work out your own, your, your, your own salvation in fear and trembling, you don't need anyone to manipulate you to work out your own salvation in fear and trembling because you're working out your own salvation in fear and trembling. And I believe that that applies to this issue. He's not seeking to put shackles on them because I want to look out and I want to see married couples. Or I want to look out and I want to see single people. No, he's saying, I want you to be undistracted from the Lord. And if there are families, unmarried who have been abandoned, and if there are single people who can focus on their devotion to God and of holiness with a singularity of focus... And promote solidarity of focus collectively, not based on the status of our marital constructs. Well, then Paul says we're free. We're free people. I'm not trying to get you to be married. I'm not trying to get you to be single. Paul is saying I'm trying to get you to be focused on the task at hand, namely that the Lord can return at any moment. He doesn't want to constrain them or us. Praise God for this and praise God for Paul in this. He's not dealing with the righteous versus the unrighteous. He's dealing with collective focus versus singularity of focus. But the object of our focus ought to be the same. And it's a bit more challenging to achieve that in the context of marital union. But it is not impossible. Instead, he's saying whatever causes greater devotion, we end it this way. That's what's best before the Lord. Should I get married? Should I remain single? We go to this. And the answer to that question is, what would cause you greater devotion to the Lord? For his great hope is however we are, because he said, remain as you were called earlier in this context. For his great hope is, however we are, to be undistracted by anything, including our marital status. 
Let's pray.